which we have designated or given the title Exalting the Word of God, because truly, indeed, that is what this beautiful psalm does. It exalts the Word of God. As we have mentioned, it is an acrostic psalm. The 176 verses are divided equally into stanzas or paragraphs, if you will, of eight uh, verses each. And in each of those eight verses, we have a letter of the alphabet, Hebrew alphabet that is, represented with each verse within that paragraph beginning with that letter, that particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. As we mentioned at the outset of our study and as we have repeated from time to time, we don't know why the Holy Spirit inspired the writer to organize and write this psalm in this fashion, perhaps for easy memorization. We simply do not know, but we do know we are thankful that we have it as a part of God's holy word because it provides us so much that is encouraging to us concerning the power and the completeness and the efficiency of the word of God to truly bless our lives at all times in times that are joyful and peaceful and good and in times that are also sorrowful and times that are difficult. Tonight we look at verses 81 through 88, this particular octave, if you will, of eight verses from Psalm 119 beginning at verse 81. And in this section of the psalm, the writer of the psalm, some believe David may have been the writer, and indeed that may be the case. Whoever he was, as we have said, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the writer here is in very deep anguish and distress through obvious persecution of some kind, and that persecution, the form of it, is not identified here. We do know that David, if indeed David is the author of this psalm, as many attribute it to him, he had periods of deep persecution. He had periods when members of his own family were seeking to overthrow him, to kill him. Absalom, his son, who ultimately was killed himself as a part of his effort to overthrow his own father and to take over the kingdom, was killed as a result of that effort. And David grieved deeply for him. We know that David lost a child. And we know the grief that he suffered there. We know that there were many occasions when David was in deep anguish and distress. We know that there were times when Saul, the first king of the United Kingdom, was so insanely and truly insanely jealous of David that he pursued him and that David, for a time period, had to hide in caves and uh, seek to save his life as a result of Saul's intense persecution of him. And so we don't know what period of time in David's life, if David be the author of this psalm that he is referring to here, but we do know that these eight verses represent deep distress and anguish because of persecution, and there is much for us to learn from it. Indeed, as Brother Ron in his very fine prayer prayed to God the Father that we understand and appreciate that this life is not a bed of roses, as it were, that 
we do have distress, that we do have our own periods of, of anguish and sorrow. And yes, we also know from Scripture in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12 that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we need not lose sight of that. As we have often said, the persecution will take different forms at different times for different people in different places and in different circumstances. But nonetheless, persecution in some form and to some degree will come to the child of God if he or she remains a child of God for very long. That we are assured of in passages like 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12. If you truly desire to live for God, someone is not going to be happy about that. There are going to be those who are going to persecute you. And I'll tell you who is most unhappy about your desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. It is the devil. The devil. He is the most unhappy when it comes to losing souls to the kingdom of God through obedience to the gospel. And he certainly begins his efforts then. He didn't have to begin them when he had you in his kingdom. But he has to begin those efforts to overthrow you once you have left his kingdom and have entered through obedience to the gospel, the kingdom of God's dear son. Persecution will come. How will we be able to withstand it? Well, by looking intently at passages such as this and seeing examples such as the psalmist gives us here as to how he dealt with his deep anguish and distress. And in seeing the power of the word of God everywhere to help us in every occasion. But this portion of the 119th Psalm has been described as the midnight of the psalm. It's midnight for the psalmist. But as has also been pointed out, the stars still shine. And the last verse of these eight verses gives promise of the dawn, that the sun is going to rise. It's important to see in these verses that despite the deep distress the psalmist is in, he never loses faith in God's word. He never loses faith in God. My soul, he says, faints for your salvation. And the salvation that is mentioned here has uh, been ascribed to spiritual salvation, but I think more likely it is salvation from the persecution. I'm fainting for salvation from the distress that I am in. I'm, I'm at the end of my rope, and I'm tying a knot in it, as it were, and holding on for dear life, but I am near the end. I'm fainting. I'm fainting. That's how deep the distress was, whatever was causing it. But, but, he says, I have not lost hope. And where is that hope? That hope is in your word. Despite the difficulties, I hope in your word. And then in 82, the next verse. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, When will you comfort me? Does this not indicate that he is longing very intently for his deliverance? I'm searching your word. My eyes are failing. I've got eye strain from searching your 
word. You know, that brings up a reminder of the need to study very diligently the word of God, doesn't it? Have you ever been in a situation where you realized I have eye strain because I've been reading the scriptures for so long and studying for so long, I'm going to have to take a break because my eyes are bothering me. Well, that's a thought, isn't it, that we need to fully appreciate in terms of letting it remind us of how important it is for us to be not casual readers of the Word of God, but intense students of the Word of God. And as the psalmist in Psalm 1 reminds us to meditate upon it day and night. Not only when we are with it in terms of studying it, but then when we leave the study of it to make sure that it lives in our lives and that it's lived out in our lives. And that we seek to, as Brandon pointed out in his excellent class this morning, mimic, and that is literally the idea of imitating Christ, that we mimic him. How will we be able to do that? The only way to do that is by looking long and hard and deeply into the mirror that presents to us the image of Jesus Christ so that we can study that image intently and seek to mimic that image. Where is that mirror? What is that mirror that presents to us very clearly the image of Christ whom we are to mimic? This is it. This is it. And we cannot hope to have the strength, the faith that we need to withstand the difficulties in our lives unless we spend enough time truly, truly studying and meditating upon the Word of God. When will you comfort me? Obviously, the distress is evident. And the next verse the psalmist writes, for I have become like a wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. A wineskin in smoke. As a skin bottle, and that's the way they stored their liquid and in New Testament times and Old Testament times. And so the, the picture here is like a, a skin bottle a bottle made out of skin that is dried and, and shriveled up in smoke. So he says, that's the way I am. I'm dried and swiveled up and withered by sorrow. It's been said that wine bottles of skin used to be hung up in smoke to dry them before the wine was put into them. And so here the psalmist says, I'm like one of those wine skins or bottles made out of animal skin that's been dried up by the smoke. That's the predicament in which I find myself. And then in the next verse he says or asks, how many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? What's he saying? How many are the days of your servant? I believe he's asking, how long can I live like this? This is how desperate the situation was. I cannot hope to live long. I am sinking under my burdens. And so if I am going to see what, 
what I desire to see, which is my deliverance from my enemies and from my troubles, it's going to have to be soon. That's what he's crying out to God and saying. I feel as though it is almost over. It's going to have to be soon. The psalmist here wasn't asking God how long he was going to live, as if that were an object of desire to know that. It's simply a method of saying he could not live long under these circumstances. And therefore, he offered this earnest prayer that God would intervene and save him and save him soon. And so he asked, when will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? How long shall this be delayed? I'm looking for it. I'm expecting it. I'm relying on the promise that it shall be done. But if I'm going to see it done, he's saying, it's going to have to be done soon because I am sinking into my grave. What we have here in this verse is simply a prayer that God would come and do quickly what he felt assured he would do. He's not doubting necessarily the confidence that he, or he's not doubting God's ability obviously to deliver him. He believes strongly in his ability to deliver him to deliver but he's simply expressing I am at my rope's end I've tied a knot I'm hanging on but I don't believe I can hang on much longer please God come and deliver me from my persecutors and then in verse 85 he explains something more about what they have done those who persecuted him the proud have dug pits for me which is not according to your law. The proud aren't concerned about the law of God. These proud, those who are exalted, uh, leading the, uh, the life of wealth and uh, riches and those who have no concern whatsoever for the law of God, no concern for God, they have, they have dug pits for me. There are many references. We won't take time to read them, but Elsewhere in the, uh, in the Psalms, Psalm 715, Psalm 35, 7, 57, 6, 94, 13, various references to the wicked, and, and they, uh, there are repeated references to this particular action of digging pits for me. Like you would dig a pit to trap a wild animal. David says, if David be the author, this is what my enemies have done. And they are not after thy law. The word here referring not to the pits that are after the law necessarily, but to those who have dug them who are not according to your law. They do not live according to your law. They are people who don't regard your commands. They're people who are public offenders. This is the kind of person I'm having to contend with, he says, who set at defiance all the laws of God. Oh, they're powerful. They're individuals who wield great power, but they have no regard for your power, God, none whatsoever. But even though they have sought my destruction in this way, he still reaffirms that he will not abandon the commandments of God. And so in the next statement, he writes, all your commandments are faithful. What a great statement that is. They persecute me wrongfully, 
help me. Look at the contrast here. Here's the contrast between the faithfulness of the law of God and the lying persecutors who have no regard for the law of God. They wrongfully persecute me. But your commandments, how many of them? All of them are faithful. How do we take the word faithful here? We take the word faithful to mean that all your commandments are to be relied upon worthily. They are worthy to be relied upon. And what we need to appreciate in this statement is that when all men fail us, and I mean all of them, if all men fail us, God's word is still faithful. God's word is still reliable. As Paul wrote in Romans 3, 4, let God be true, but every man a liar. And that's true. Let God be true, but every man a liar. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 23 admonished the Christians, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, 23. And where are those promises? Where do we find the promises of the one who is faithful? In his word. And so if we hold fast, as the psalmist was determined to hold fast despite the intense persecution he was enduring, if we will hold fast no matter what comes, then we know that he who promised is faithful and that our hope of eternal life is sure. And Titus 1 and verse 2 reminds us of that very thing. As Paul writes, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie, promised before time began. God cannot lie. He cannot die and he cannot lie. And his promises are true. One other text in Hebrews 6.18 reminds us that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. God cannot lie, will not lie. And every promise that we find written in this inspired word is sure and true and faithful. And not only every promise that we find written, but everything that is written here is true. Everything in God's word is truly given by the inspiration of God. We live in a time, and as we began this series this year, I said that I would plan to spend some time this year with lessons that remind us not only of the existence of God, but also of the revelation of God and the reliability of that revelation, that the Bible is the Word of God, because it is under attack, I believe, perhaps as it has never been under attack, the existence of God is under attack as it has never been. The Bible, his word is under attack it is as it has never been. And even those many who try to defend it, defend it only partially. They will say, well, it's good in matters of morals and salvation, but it's unreliable in other areas. It's not completely reliable. It just, um, it's geographically, archaeologically, you may find contradictions and so forth. And so many of the so-called defenders will not completely defend the Bible when in fact the Bible is reliable in every area. Geography, archaeology, scientific foreknowledge as we have talked about before, the Bible 
in proper translation, is indeed completely reliable. All your commandments, the writer says, are faithful. All your commandments are reliable. And the archaeological spade has never uncovered one thing that has produced a contradiction to any statement that God's word has made about the location of a city, etc., nor has any uh, discovery about geography or any known fact of geography compared to the ge geographical references in Scripture. No contradiction has ever been found, nor will one ever be found. Oh, we've said before, there have been all sorts of alleged contradictions. There is a vast difference between someone alleging that there's a contradiction and proving that there's a contradiction. And no one has ever proved a contradiction. They've alleged that they are there. But don't you believe if one had ever been absolutely proved, we could dismiss right now. Because indeed, there'd be no point in trying to uphold the Bible as what it claims to be and what it proves itself to be, and that is the all-sufficient, completely inspired Word of God. And so, when David says all your commandments are faithful, reliable, trustworthy, they have proved themselves over time to be just that. And despite the distractors and the attackers, the Word of God still stands as it is being described by the psalmist in this verse. They persecute me wrongfully. I'm not deserving of this persecution, he says. And then he simply cries, help me, help me. They almost, the next verse tells us, made an end of me on earth. They just about did me in. How did I react to that? I did not forsake your precepts. Almost made an end. Almost made an end. Same expression that is used back in verse 81 when he said, My soul faints for your salvation. Same word is used here that is translated in the New King James, made an end. They've just about done me in. The idea is that their persecutions had been so severe and they had continued for so long that his strength was almost <clears throat> exhausted. He was ready to faint and to die, but I did not forsake your precepts. I remained with God, even in the extremity of my suffering. Should persecution, should suffering of any kind drive us from God, or cause us to abandon God? The answer is no. And the psalmist reminds us that the answer is no right here. As he describes a time of deep distress, and yet with every other breath, as it were, with every other stroke of the pen, after expressing that deep distress, he quickly reaffirms, but I will not forsake my God. And I will not forsake his word. Just last week, I was in the meeting, as I mentioned this morning, in Union City at a very fine congregation, the Bishop Street congregation. 
And upon arriving there on Sunday morning prior to Bible class, I met a, an older gentleman, very nice brother in Christ with whom I was conversing, and he was telling me about the preacher whom I had not had the privilege of meeting before uh, conducting the gospel meeting there. And the preacher's sister whom I met is the secretary there. But he was telling me that, as it turned out, it was 2010, not all that long ago, I believe, or maybe, I believe 2012, actually, while the preacher and his sister's other family members, mother, father, and brother, were driving down to the Real Foot Lake area there. They're near Real Foot Lake, and there's a good place to eat fish or places there. They were on their way to, to eat fish. The mother, the father, and one of the three children, all with a head-on collision, gone from this world. Two killed instantly, and the father died just a few days later. And as I expressed my sympathy on one occasion during the meeting to him and then later to her as I had opportunity, and that I could only imagine, could only imagine the kind of sorrow and distress that that would bring into your life so suddenly. They appreciated the expression of sympathy, and the preacher, Brother Bell, had told me, he said, well, but the, the comforting thing was knowing that they were faithful children of God, that they were Christians. But there's a greater, there's an additional comfort too, and there's no comfort that can compare with that comfort, but there's an additional comfort for those two siblings left behind. They have each other, and they're both children of God and faithful Christians, but they remained faithful after that terrible, terrible tragedy, and no indication whatsoever that their faith wavered or that they ever questioned God. But I could not help but think of them as I prepared this lesson for tonight, that that had to be a time of unfathomable sorrow. Three family members, mother, father, and brother, gone just like that. And yet the brother and sister who are left are still faithful to God. They did not forsake God's precepts. And the final plea is revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. A reminder that we should never lose sight of the loving kindness, the grace, and the mercy of God. Even when bad things, terrible things happen to very good people, we must not, we must not doubt the grace and mercy and loving kindness of God. And where do we come to learn of that grace and that mercy and that loving kindness? In his word. Earlier in this psalm, the psalmist declared at verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. That's the power that it has. That's the mercy and the loving kindness of the Lord in giving to us a word that has that kind of power 
to revive us when our souls cling to the dust. And are we not thankful, as Brother Ron again expressed so beautifully in his prayer, for brothers and sisters in Christ who cling to that word even when their souls cling to the dust and who help us as well when our souls on occasion cling to the dust. Aren't we grateful for the preciousness of that fellowship that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are so willing and eager to aid us and to help us and to comfort us as they imitate the Christ in so doing? Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may what? Keep the testimony of your mouth. His hope of being able to keep it was founded on the grace and mercy which he besought God to bestow upon him. And when he mentions the testimony of your mouth, it reminds us of what the word inspiration means. It means God breathed. This is the very word of his mouth. And this is the word that can indeed get us through the midnights in our lives and remind us that the stars still shine and that the dawn will come again. Do you have that kind of comfort? Do you have that reassurance? Do you have that hope? The hope in his word. Not if you haven't obeyed it. And tonight if you haven't, we plead with you to do that. So that in the good times as well as the very, very difficult times, you can, as the psalmist did, as we have studied tonight, truly, truly be comforted and reassured that God is there and that God cares and that God will deliver. The only way to know that is by obedience to the gospel through a belief that leads you to repent of your sins, confess Jesus to be the Christ, and to be buried for the remission of sins in baptism, to rise to walk in newness of life with the reassurance and the comfort and the consolation that now you are in covenant relationship with the creator of the universe, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and that you have all that you need through the word that he has in his loving kindness and mercy given to you to guide you from earth to heaven. If you don't have that assurance, you can before you leave here tonight. And if you once had that assurance, but you abandoned it because of a life of sin, going back into the world, living in a way that brought reproach and brings reproach upon the church, sin that is public that needs to be confessed in that way, we plead with you to do that tonight. As we stand to sing, would you come?